Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. In this episode of the Pigskin Dispatch, we're going to go back and look at some of the great fields that were built in the 1920s as memorial stadiums with a curator and historian of many museums and Jeremy Swick, the average historian. He joins us in just a moment to tell us all about the memorial stadiums and more. This is the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch, a podcast that covers the anniversaries of American football events throughout history on a day-to-day basis. Your host, Darren Hayes, is podcasting from America's North Shore to bring you the memories of the gridiron one day at a time. So as we come out of the tunnel of the Sports History Network, let's take the field and go no huddle through the portal of positive gridiron history with pigskindispatch.com. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, my football friends. This is Darren Hayes of pigskindispatch.com. Welcome once again to the Pigpen, your portal to positive football history. And we are going to stare in that portal today and go back into one of my favorite eras, the 1920s and uh, some other pre-World War II eras of the gridiron. And we have it with a very expert person that's uh has a lot to do with history actually he goes by the moniker of the average historian he has been a curator and worked at multiple different museums including the pro football hall of fame and the college football hall of fame and his resume goes on and on and on he's a knowledgeable about history and especially gridiron history and we're going to welcome him in right now jeremy swick welcome to the pig pen thank you so much for having me i really appreciate it it's so great to be here we appreciate you taking the time to, to come on and talk to us tonight. But first, before we get into our subject tonight, uh, you know, we'd like to learn a little bit more about you. Uh, you know, first of all, your, your passion for history, and it sounds like it's a bunch of different areas of history. And then maybe uh, after you tell us a little bit about that, we'll focus more into your, your football history and your football fandom. Absolutely. So growing up, I think I always loved history. I maybe not really realized it at the time. And I ended up gravitating towards sports books, sports magazines. I still remember having my Sports Illustrated for kids with Michael Vick on the cover and learning all the stats. And while the internet was there, it wasn't to the same level as it is today. And so growing up in Wisconsin, um, it was one of those things where I always tell people I didn't become a Packers fan. I think I always was. I don't really remember that time when I decided I wanted to cheer for the green and yellow. But in a more professional stance of my love for history, really expanded. Um, I wasn't a great student in high school. I thoroughly enjoyed social studies classes and gym classes. Those were kind of my two fortes. We were fortunate enough to have block scheduling, so I only had to get through about four class periods a day. I would maneuver my schedule to make sure it was a maybe a cooking class, a gym class, maybe a history class, and then of course, maybe end the day with either another cooking class or maybe a gym, a gym class that was called a different name just to, to make sure any kind of athletes were able to really enjoy the weight room while at school. I attended the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, um, and I was very, to be honest, undecided in what I wanted to do with school. 
uh, as I mentioned, you know, wasn't maybe the best student. It wasn't terrible, but did just enough to get by. And I realized I really loved history. So, of course, me being really new to the school system and, you know, having to really turn it on in the classroom, I started to gravitate towards history classes. A few semesters in, I would say one of my one of my professors and who was my, also my advisor uh, kind of hinted that maybe I should do something with history. And I had seemed to take kind of all the history classes I could. I, I still always have one of those favorite memories of as an undergrad was we took an exam. It was one of those large lecture halls with 100 people. Just by habit, I all sat in the front, retain information and at least keep myself responsible uh, to be there, but also to you know get the information. I remember coming in on a Friday. It was you know in college. It was Thursday the night before. So coming in, just get, getting ready to get the day done with. And I knew we were going to get our exams back. And of course, we talked, kind of go over the exam. It was one of those multiple choice uh, tests. And I remember, you know, I'm like, I did pretty well. Uh, fortunately for me, I've always looked at history as like a story. So when you read it, especially with those multiple choice tests, something had to happen in order for something else to happen. It was that chain of events. So those multiple choice tests were always easy for me because I just read it all. Oh, he had to have happened or this had to happen before this happened because he wasn't born yet. And I just remember that that's kind of how I studied, if you will. It was more like me reading the textbook and kind of being done with it at that point. But I remember this class specifically because our, our professor was talking and she said everyone did real well. Some, you know, not everyone did great, but everyone did pretty well. And she was like, I, I have shout out one person uh they actually got a hundred percent on this exam and in my brain i'm like oh geez who 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 messed up the curve because you know the, the grades were set on a curve and so i was like who, who got this hundred percent and of course to give me my props she calls out my name <laughs> and it was kind of one of those first moments where one i think i did really well in school for one of the first times not ever but in a while uh but also kind of I think subconsciously put me on the right track in my brain to know that I really did enjoy, enjoy this history thing. Uh, fast forward a few years later, um, of course, I think we all fall in, historians a lot of times fall into the trap, what are you going to do? Teach. So I was involved in the education program up at Eau Claire, and I always attribute that to really helping to develop my soft people skills, working you know, with crowds, being in classrooms, being in front of large audiences. Later, later, I wouldn't realize they would be on live TV and doing podcasts, but it was one of those things that really helped me develop as a, a future historian and professional. Ended up at not going, not completely going the education route while I still loved working with students. I found other avenues for that and actually ended up deciding to go to Eau Claire for grad school, almost right out of college, right out of undergrad. And I, I always tell this story that I decided in about August of that year. And so it was a pretty tight deadline. I had talked to my professors. I knew I'd get in. But for all the official paperwork to come through, it was a little nerve wracking at, at the time because I technically was about to audit some classes, just being in in the classroom, knowing that everything else would fall through in the next week or so. And of course, the, that's what I did. And it really, to be honest, kind of changed the course of my life, if you will. I went to school at Eau Claire. As I mentioned, I got my master's at Eau Claire as well. And one of the you know circumstances that happened was 
the guy who was the curator out at the Patriots Hall and now at the Packers Hall of Fame, Brent Hensel, he also went through the program at Eau Claire. Our professors were fortunate enough to kind of see that we were definitely on the same track, had the same interests. I wrote my undergrad on early American rugby and how American football kind of gave that death, death sentence to rugby in America. It was also one of those personal connections. I played rugby in high school and college, and I, I still play at this point. But it was always one of those areas of history I always wanted to learn more. And I felt myself digging deeper and deeper into kind of the mystery of sports and history and popular culture and all that. Well, Brent ended up helping me get my internship at the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 2016. And for those of you not from Wisconsin, people might not know that Brett Favre was inducted in 2016. So as a kid from Wisconsin, I got to celebrate my idol uh, induction to the, to the most prestigious Hall of Fame in the country when it comes to professional sports, professional football, if you will. That's so, quite, a, quite an honor there. That, things have really changed there the last uh, decade or so, haven't they? Oh, absolutely. It was great. It's funny. Uh, their curator... Jason Akins, I just talked to him on the phone today. So one of the great things about the sports hall of fame, sports heritage, if you will, especially in the United States is that it's a really, it's a big group of people. It's also a really close connection. And whenever I was at the, if I was at the college hall or the pro hall, or even now, if I call people and maybe need a favor with someone or making an introduction to someone, it's always a great uh, network to have. I noticed on your shirt, the listeners can't see your shirt, but he has a National Football Foundation emblem on his shirt. So I know I'm talking some serious historic gridiron legacy here. Definitely, definitely. And, you know, the Football Foundation throughout my time at the College Football Hall of Fame, it was they were so great to work with. I, I truly appreciated my my time with them. And again, still talking to people uh, to this day. College Football Hall of Fame. Once upon a time, it used to be up by South Bend. I have a, a, I live in Erie, Pennsylvania. So I have a brother that lives in Chicago. So when we would travel up to Chicago on I-90, you get off at the South Bend exit, you're turn one way, you're at the College Football Hall of Fame, you turn the other way, you're at Notre Dame, you know, and I'm a Notre Dame fan. So it was, it was a great uh, stop there, but they, they moved that uh, a few years ago down to Atlanta. And I, I assume that's where you worked was in the Atlanta. Yes, that, that is correct. Uh, they opened up in 2014, closed doors in 2012, and started you know started the groundbreaking at the at the hall in Atlanta. And uh, from 2014 on, it's it was it's just been one of those incredible places to be. Yeah, I, I can't even imagine with the the modern twist they must have put into it down in Atlanta because I it, it was it was beautiful in South Bend, but it was a little bit old, a little bit small. You could tell they were bursting at the seams a little bit. So that's that's probably a great move for them. For the hall, it was, a, you know, it was an excellent move, more foot traffic, but also um, just having that ability to kind of start fresh with a new building and how interactive it actually ended up being. Um, I always joked when I was there that it had it had the ability to pa pa pass the test that if my mother approved or if my mom, if my mom had fun, uh, you know, we were doing something right uh, up here, up in Wisconsin, it's all Packers all the time. And of, of course, we, we do have our love for the Badgers up here, but it, it's definitely a, a different breed down there in terms of that love for college football. 
but the Hall of Fame just did a great job about making it interactive and making it fun for people to people of all levels of experience when it comes to football history to enjoy their time there. Yeah, I, I can imagine they must. That's a, a great area for, for college football. It seems to be the, the hot spot, you know, especially Atlanta with uh, Georgia just winning the national championship last year and always having some good programs down there in the SEC and the ACC, which are surround that, that whole area. So that's a, a great place for it. Not that having it in South Bend wasn't too up in Big Ten kick, uh, territory, uh, you know, University of Chicago, not too far away, you know, Notre Dame right there, uh, Illinois, a lot, a lot of good programs up there too. But, uh, you know, this is good that the different parts of the nation get to get to enjoy the College Football Hall of Fame. And so I think it's a good, good move that they did that. Definitely, definitely. It's funny you mentioned University of Chicago. It just made me think of one of my favorite exhibit pieces I had the opportunity to view when I was down there. And it was actually donated by someone from Jay Burwanger's family. It -hmm. was a scrapbook of his entire life. And I never thought I'd be seeing baby pictures of Jay Burwanger or him at his first school dance or as as a child or growing up throughout his life. And it was just one of those really cool, uh, I guess, connections of college football. And you mentioned University of Chicago. That just kind of made me think of it. Yeah, Burwanger was definitely one of uh, Coach Stagg's uh, favorites, I think, because he uh, very much promoted the game and what the game that Stagg wanted it to be. And he was a, a great player, too. So great history there. Well, you came on for a subject that uh, you said you did your master's uh, on, I believe you said your master's thesis in college. And that's talking about some of these uh, older stadiums, the memorial stadiums, I believe you categorized them at, that were uh, built basically in the 1920s, which was one of my favorite eras of, of gridiron football. Yes, it was one of those eras. And that is what I wrote my master's thesis on. Uh, you know, college football is in the excuse me, college football stadiums in the 1920s. I called it a living memorial, a case study of the creation of memorial stadiums at the University of Illinois, University of Minnesota, and Indiana University during the 1920s. And one of the best pieces of advice, and I'll shout him out, Dr. Mann, uh, who was one of my advisors while working on my master's thesis, was writing something on you would find passion in every day you write on it. You might not enjoy it every day, but you have that passion and that interest. And that's that kind of led me down that path because from what I learned from past experiences with, with other graduates or soon to be graduates is a lot of times, and I can't even imagine those who have gone the next step and worked on a, a, dis, a full dissertation um, is if you start to hate your paper, uh, it makes it being done with your paper a lot more difficult. Uh, And so I found those areas that I really found interesting, even from the preliminary research. Okay. Now I'm not familiar with, with either of those three stadiums. I've never visited them. Let's put it that way. So other than them being built in the 1920s and they belong to big 10 schools, what are the similarities that sort of had you group those, those three together? What, What brought them together? Yes. So first before, before that, I just want to take a little bit to talk about what what kind of came a be what came to be in the 1920s or really the late 1910s sure it was almost like the perfect storm if you will of building college football stadiums of course there were older stadiums and i think harvard is usually the gold standard that was built on soldiers field 
as kind of it wasn't the biggest but it it was the most well known and i always remind people that this this was the time period of the ivies they were they were uh the kings of college football at that time and so as i mentioned they were they were kind of the gold standard and you started to see even before we entered world war 1 the idea of using football stadiums or athletics as kind of a gathering place or a place of notoriety uh, for those who had previously served. If you think of places like, of course, Soldiers Field at Harvard or Camp Randall, of course, in Wisconsin, this idea of having a, a gathering place, a common place, if you will, a uniting place, what wasn't a brand new idea? Going off that, another interesting aspect was and I always, I realized during my research, I had to take the lens of what we view today as, where we look at colleges as they call us every month to get more money for something. And didn't we already just give you all the money we had and, you know, and then some. Um, I am fortunate enough, uh, I don't have any student loans. I paid those off. Just wanted to throw that out there. I, oh, I'm fortunate in, <laughs> fortunate in that respect. But it was this idea that there were these memorial, excuse me, these class memorials, senior classes would all get together and chip in a certain amount of money and to donate, whether it be a memorial gate or a garden or maybe a bench or something like that. One of, one of the areas that really started to, I found interest in was the University of Illinois and they were kind of the first people I really started to take that deep dive into. And they, they had, the I believe, the class of 1914 had this idea or desire to donate these, these chimes. It, it was going to be a large purchase and like wind chimes as a way to kind of give back. But each class, the plan was for each class. So you'd start donating as a freshman. And then as a sophomore, you donate as junior, as a senior. So by, by your you know, final class, it would be, it would be able to donate uh, that, those chimes. Well, of course, what none of us really expected, except maybe, I guess, the rest of the world, because they were already in it, was World War I. Or, or you know, as most people know, you know, people know it as the Great War. That really sidetracked any kind of building, promotion, de desire. They really wanted to focus on those that had already left school or those that were about to start training and, and, and serving. And so... The, these these ideas were put on hold. Eventually, the class, I believe the 1921 class, were finally able to donate the, the chimes. But th this kind of brought into a new realm of not only just the, the senior class donations, but also the university's desire for new buildings and, and new infrastructure. And so th this kind of started with, obviously it started with other universities as well, but Illinois really saw this as a perfect opportunity to not only have a way to build camaraderie with not only alumni, but current students, faculty, all that, to get this money to build these stadiums. One of the areas there that they really, the pitfall, I would say, at first was they had all these ideas before they had any money. So I, I was able to look at some of these original blueprints and original plans I mean, you you would have thought, I can't even imagine, I can't even explain. Not only was it a stadium, it was courtyards around, it was tennis courts, it was, you know, you name it, that that stadium would 
it, it would have blown people away. And not to say that the eventual Memorial Stadium didn't, but they they used an interesting method, one they had already done, those those memorial donations. It was almost like a subscription-based, if you will, where each every six months you'd pay in. Uh, another idea, another idea with that was that after you graduate, you get a bill maybe every six months and you donate the $20 or $50. Well, of course, post-war, post that, post-graduation, you kind of forget to pick up the, read those mail, the read, excuse me, you kind of forget to read those letters uh, that your old university keeps sending you to remind you to pay for something. Now you're not using as much. And so the Memorial Stadium eventually was built. But the thing was that after that, previous or the, the next universities started to use what what they learned from the experiences of Illinois to build build their own in a in a slightly different way. Uh, of course, you know, with Minnesota using using that same kind of method, but also making sure they're going to get the funding ahead of time and make sure making sure it's more of a even more of a student's voice in not only building a stadium, but also having somewhat of a utility as well, building a hall as a Northrop Hall as well. Of course, with Indiana, it, it was kind of the same thing. They, they were the latest to build theirs. And they, they had another kind of, I would say, audacious plan to build three buildings. Eventually, by 1932, the last of the buildings were completed. But that's really how, and I, I know that was, you know, to make a long story long, that, that was kind of how they, they went into being, if you will, um, just using those past kind of methods to create um, excitement, of course, revenue to, to build those memorial stadiums. Okay, so the memorial part of that is more for the memorial of the classes that, that donated and not a, a memorial to somebody that passed or uh, the war heroes from World War I or, or things such as that. Is that, is that correct? So that, that's kind of how I think I read it at first. But one of the things I learned is even, even now and even back then, it was developing that idea of patriotism and nationalism that, that those memorial stadiums would eventually become ways to honor those World War I veterans. It was one of those interesting areas and, excuse me, eras of time that I, I always remind myself, we weren't even in the war that long. But when people came back, it was a kind of a newfound way to generate excitement, revenue uh, for those stadiums. Uh, one of the things is we were, we were kind of severely not physically ready to go to war at that exact point. So one of the reasons on one of the ideas on building the memorial stadiums was as a training place for young men. So should the time for valor come again, uh, the United States would be ready. Um, you, you have to when you think about that time, American football was especially considered as one of those, uh, you know, highly hyper masculine sports. And as a kind of a way, I mean, I go through going through newspapers, you look at it, it was almost like a gladiatorial bout the way they are right about it. You feel like you're in a Coliseum at Rome excuse me, a Coliseum in Rome. And I always think of with those pillars at Illinois, it kind of feels like you 
you're you're getting ready for a gladiatorial battle. And so those memorial stadiums really end up becoming a a way through which schools were able to get funding for the projects they wanted, but at the same time on the backs of the students and not necessarily in a negative way, but letting it being student led and student a student charge more so as more so than you know universities completely taking advantage of students it it was definitely uh a mutually beneficial desire if that makes sense yeah it makes perfect sense that's it's interesting that you said you know i believe you said illinois they started the the funding for the stadium 1921 well that sort of coincides with a, a pretty important player in football history that played at illinois and probably was playing in maybe got the plate would be one of the first ones to play on that field when it was built. And that's Red Grange playing there. Did he stir up some public interest to sort of help propel the interest in building a bigger stadium? So absolutely. So one of my favorite things is the stadium, again, they ran out of some funding. It wasn't exactly. So in 1923, they are ready to go. It wasn't complete, complete, but they had seats in the stand. And um, I believe they finished against Chicago. I believe it was Chicago, a 0-0 tie. But then the following homecoming, 1924, they were ready to go. And, of course, the Galloping Ghost, that was the game where he scored five touchdowns in one of the single-handedly greatest individual performances of all time. Every It, it was funny because all the newspapers, of course, in my research, uh, heavily relied on not only the universities with their help, but the, the student newspapers. And of course, in the same breath, in the same story, you'll see a giant, you know, superimposed Red Grange who had just caught a touchdown and reminding you, reminding the, or the coach reminding you that uh, make sure to pay your subscription to make sure, oh, you know, the Align I have, have a home this year. And, and that coach was probably uh, Bob Zupke at the time, I believe. So a very good uh, historic coach to a very important player in, in American football history as well. So, so how, uh, but I know that uh, Indiana there, they weren't too shabby back then and Minnesota, they were a powerhouse back in the, the 1920s, you know, that the whole Midwest uh, area was just uh, between Chicago and Illinois and Michigan, Notre Dame, uh, Minnesota, they were just uh, beating each other up uh, quite a bit playing and uh, making the East a little nervous. I think with the, the prowess of football, they were playing. It was, it was definitely one of those, I would say, uh, slow changing points. Of course, there were some success um, in, the, in the South, in the SEC, although they came a little bit later. You, you of course, had Center, Center College, uh, among a few other programs that had those, uh, you know, moments of time. But it really started to, I would say, the Midwest started to kind of awaken and uh, put the East and, of course, Notre Dame a little bit on their toes more than I, I think sometimes they anticipated. And uh, Red Grange is one of my favorite people to look at and study, mainly because, again, it was a perfect storm. The way he played, of course, that would have been great to read about in newspapers, as most did of the day. But this is then becomes the time period of the newsreels going to your local movie theater. And after after the main picture, seeing the news of of the week or of the month. And of course, a lot of times, especially in Midwest, you're going to see Red Grange running through everyone. I mean, he was called the Galloping Ghost for a reason. And I, I would say, I always argue that he was kind of that era's Babe Ruth. 
that baseball had had in the you know in years past he he was kind of the gold standard of what what people envision the gritty tough i mean when you when you're called the Wheaton ice man because you 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 slung ice in the summers as you're you know in between college jobs he was one of those i think one of those larger than life uh characters yeah, a, tr- a tremendous athlete. And like you said, he's, his uh, training regiment, which was probably somewhat accidental by carrying those giant blocks of ice around and uh, had to make people have cold food in their, their fridges at the time. Just a great training program and just natural ability as well. You know, this is long before the, the weight rooms and sophisticated uh, training programs we have today for, for college football and pro football. But he, he was definitely a great one. And you know, he had some other great names in there too. You had the Ernie Nevers and and you know well, Thorpe Thorpe was a little bit before them, but uh, you know, just some great players coming out of there. But I had to had to believe that you know Red Grange had to be a big part of that with that stadium. Maybe it was ended up being a little bit bigger than they first planned. Yes, yes, you know Red Grange is just one of those. I mean, just those guys of of lore, if you will, when it comes to college football, and then of course, uh, eventually pro football history. Okay, no. So these three stadiums that you studied in, in the 1920s are they still in use today, or, or have they been replaced by by other facilities? So Illinois is still around. Uh, Indiana shares the same name, but it, it is a different stadium. And I, Minnesota obviously is now no long no longer in use as well. So one one is still standing a hundred some years later. That's that's pretty remarkable. And I know I, I got a chance to tour the the Yale Bowl probably about a decade ago uh, in the off season and just got to go into its guts and everything. And just, I mean, what a, what a magnificent structure that is. So I'm imagining, you know, it's, it's a, maybe a little bit before the, the era of the stadiums you're talking about, but just the architecture that they did, they put a lot more into detail, a lot more craftsmanship than, than we have today of our, you know, our mold uh, molded cement, the, uh, things that they're doing everybody sort of had to do some a lot of handwork to and made it really kind of special for these uh, architectural buildings that they built back then including stadiums absolutely and you look at the the blueprints and it was funny because in grad in grad school i had a lot a lot of the scans of these documents they had a great subscription book and it, it started the line i it started with these grand pictures of you know envisioning what the stadium will be for years to come, it it, it literally made you feel like you're you're going to a coliseum, and of course at the end of it, it has your little tabs where you can save your subscription stubs, and uh, that that kind of that 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 idea, while great, it was one of the things that I think had made them dial back what they from what they originally wanted. But um, to say that. I was, of course, at the College Football Hall of Fame, and I was able to actually kind of open up one of those subscription books and look through it, and it was kind of like that that history coming to life uh, once again, and it was as great as scans are and as great as that is, there's something special about being able to hold those physical artifacts. Uh, I, I can't even imagine you, you make me very envious that you get to, to look at those things. That's gotta be something uh, truly special to, to behold and to, to hold actually hold in your hand. So that's, that's pretty cool. So, so what uh, now you've worked in both the, the pro football hall of fame and the college football hall of fame. You've described a, a couple items of each already. What, what is your, your favorite football uh, memento that's either on display or not in display 
that you, you got to see it. it. It can be from either of the, the halls of football. So I, I have, I have one, one for each. Okay. I would probably say at the, uh, at the pro football hall of fame was holding one of Bart Starr's jerseys uh, that he played in. And he, I have a funny story about that. It was during the Super Bowl that was in Atlanta. Of course, I had those connections from the Pro Football Hall of Fame. They gave me a call. Hey, can you come help us out? We just got to put some exhibits together uh, real quick before it should only take a few hours. Uh, the, the famous last words. <laughs> well, of course, on their way from Canton, their truck broke, their box truck broke down and they had to get a new one. By the time that truck drove to Atlanta, all the gates were closed and no one was there. So they spent, you know, an hour in the parking lot, the giant parking lot of the Georgia world Congress center, uh, putting, putting, trying to find this box truck and us trying to find them. Well, of course, most of the hired help had already gone home. And so it's me and Jason, the curator there at, at the pro hall about 9 PM, we start putting up all these cases together and about 4:30 AM we finish. But, you know, it was one of those surreal experiences because I'm, again, you know, never thought I'd get to hold Bud Stars jersey once. And now I'm doing it again as a help to the uh, as a help to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And uh, one of the cool things they did give me is they gave me a helmet, like a Pro Football Hall of Fame helmet, which is as an intern I always wanted, but really couldn't afford that, you know, that current juncture in my life. And, you know, it meant a little bit more that they gave it to me. But for to say that, that was the Bart Star, uh, probably Bart Star's jersey, because uh, Brett Favre's bust was too easy. That that that's that's always the one I love to see. But uh, the Star jersey was something special as well. Um, in regards to the College Football Hall of Fame, it was actually a full collection. Um, so besides what I do, what I did, I should say for for a living dealing with historic artifacts. I'm also, also a big sports card collector myself. And so anyone who follows sports cards, is, there's a pretty famous uh, college football set. It's the 1955 Tops All-American cards. They, were, they did not have a deal with the NFL. So instead, what Tops did is they looked at not only current or brand new college stars, but kind of turned the time back and looked at some of the, the greats, the Jim Thorpes, even though he hadn't played in, 30, 40 years at that point. And uh, a man reached out to me and we're talking a little bit. And he's like, I have these cards if you're interested. And I kind of have him explain it to me. And of course he tells me they're the 1955 top set. And they're all, not all, but 79 of the possible 88 of the hundred cards set are signed. Wow. And it's, it's, you know, you name it, it's signed. And of the hundred card set, 12 had passed before 19, uh, 55, the other 79 of the 88 had signed. And I remember this is right before the pandemic, right before, you know, the world, the world kind of uh, shuts down for a little bit. And I tell him, and I had never told this the entire time I was there, when people donate, I like to put it on display for temporary, you know, a temporary display, but I can't guarantee that it's going to be in the hall of fame forever. Uh, he was the one exception uh, Bob Keydance, I told him, I'm going to find a place for these in the hall. I don't know where yet, but if you donate them, they're going to go on display because they're just, they're too great not to be on display. 
And of course, contact breaks up because it's the pandemic. I'm back in Wisconsin for a little while and kind of, and I'm, I'm still not even, you know, completely working, but I'm calling him. I'm emailing him probably every other week just to, Hey, hmm. you know, how are you doing? You know, keeping, you know, keeping in contact. Um, and eventually he sends them. He also sends a 1948 to 1952 uh, exhibit football card set. Sign, it, was a, it was signed. I don't remember the exact number, but it was signed by a lot of guys, put it that way. And uh, that was another one. We, we don't, they didn't quite have it on permanent display, but we, it was one of those great things where we could use for different, uh, you know, different moments. If we're talking about specific school, pulling it out that way. But it was one of those uh, really, really cool experiences uh, from being a sports card collector myself to being able to put something so rare uh, for everyone to see it was uh, really fun. That's like uh, sort of holding the the holy grails, uh, if you will, of sports cards, for especially gridiron sports cards, I'm sure. Uh, that is oh, pretty oh, neat. for sure. Yes. Uh, my favorite card from that set was the uh, signed by all four of the horsemen. Really? Wow. Yes. <laughs> That, that is really neat. They, they were all still living in 55. Yes. Wow. Tremendous. That, that would be pretty neat. Are you, are you still involved with the uh, sports curation and, and museums uh, today? Or you, that was just like a, a part-time passion and your, your day job is now historic in some other manner. So, yes, I, I was, you know, I was at the college football hall Fame for four years um, in, in recent months, I I've relocated back to Wisconsin and I'm currently at the Wisconsin Black Historical Society in Milwaukee, uh, working as their archivist, helping helping them organize and really help us get the archives to the next level in preparation for hopefully a new building coming in the in the next next few years. One, one of the areas of interest I've had throughout undergrad and grad school was African American history, and um, of course that ended up dovetailing a lot with football, um, having the opportunity to interview different, uh, you know, important African-American athletes, players, coaches, and continue to build upon that. I, I've had that opportunity to now move back home, move back to Milwaukee and, uh, you know, share those stories. But something, you know, it's one of those itches that I don't, go ever, I, I don't think I'll ever fully scratch is being, you know, meeting people like yourself to talk about the, the rich history of not only college football, but just what makes history so amazing. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of crossover in that because that's pretty cool that you can uh, refer back to uh, your your past life and as a, a football historian to, to what you're doing today. That's pretty neat. Absolutely. It's been just one of those great experiences for athletes and players of the African-American community to really share not only their stories, but uh, just show what is possible, not only in the realms of athletics, but, um, you know, outside, I always think of... Um, you know, so, so, you know, some of those key African-Americans with, within the community. And it's just one of those uh, ways to, you know, bridge that gap and show, uh, you know, athletes are more than just athletes, but they have those abilities to, uh, you know, showcase, you know, everything that people have to offer. Yeah, definitely. Well, Jeremy, uh, 
why don't you, before we let you go, why don't you uh, tell people where they can follow you on social media? If you have a, a website or anything that they could, you want people to follow you on, uh, please feel free to do it. We'll also reflect it in the show notes. So folks, if you're driving, uh, we will, we'll have this information on Jeremy too, in the, the show notes of this podcast, so you can get to him as well. So Jeremy, go ahead, please. And share those with us. Yeah. So you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and uh, TikTok, of course, at the average historian. On Twitter, you can find me at Real J Swick. And feel free to reach out on any of those platforms or uh, s- send me an email, jswick at swickmedia.com. I always just love chatting with people and just, you know, talking a little bit more about history. Well, Jeremy Swick, we, we thank you. The average historian has come and spoke to us about some great gridiron history. And thrown in a lot of uh, more American history as well. And we appreciate you, sir, taking the time and coming sharing with us here in the pig pen. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. That's all the football history we have today, folks. Join us back tomorrow for more of your football history. We invite you to check out our website, pigskindispatch.com, not only to see the daily football history, but to experience positive football with our many articles on the good people of the game, as well as our own football comic strip, Cleet Marks Comics. Pigskindispatch.com is also on social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel to get all of your positive football news and history. Special thanks to the talents of Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff for letting us use their music during our podcast. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, football fans. This is Ross, the host of the Pigskin Tales podcast. I just need a few moments of your time to talk about the host of the Pigskin Dispatch podcast, Darren Hayes. He's expanded the pig pen to search out information on the history of all team sports. It's a quest to find out about the competitors, teams, and places chronicled throughout athletic history through the uniforms and gear the participants used and wore. And he is taking you, the listener, with him on this educational journey to preserve sports history on the Sports Jersey Dispatch, found here on the Sports History Network. His newest podcast, called Jersey Dispatch, is all based on the jerseys that all the greats used to wear. You can find Darren Hayes and the Pigskin Dispatch podcast, as well as Jersey Dispatch, on your favorite podcast provider multiple times each week. So remember that, Darren Hayes, the host of the Pigskin Dispatch and Jersey Dispatch podcasts. It's found right here on the Sports History Network.